Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, we begin with Harm Bandholtz. He's the U.S. Chief Economist at Unicredit, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130. Uh, studios. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the meeting uh, in Portugal earlier this week. Uh, central bankers working to coordinate their efforts together. Uh, certainly interesting commentary for them. What's your takeaway from what they had to say uh, in Portugal? Well, I think the clear message is that they are all looking at a global economy that looks an awful lot better than it did only a couple of months ago, certainly a year ago. And um, I mean, they are all aware that they used almost well, basically unprecedented monetary policy easing to, you know, to fight this deep recession and uh, crisis that we have seen several years ago. Mm. And now that the world is looking better, they are very gradually preparing certainly markets um, that they are willing to take a step back. Right. Um, so we just see it as a very early, careful signal to um, of to show transparency, uh -huh. that they are willing um, and to withdraw accommodation, but it's nothing that is imminent. They just want to, you, may, you remember the taper tantrum in May 2013, um, they want to be even more careful than that because they know how markets can react. And we, ha I mean, we have seen a quite sizable reaction in markets, even as what Draghi and uh, Carney have been saying was not too different from what they said before. But, you know, the market is looking at every small words and, uh, and so the reaction was big. But, but again, I don't think there's any policy action imminent, but the direction is clear. You know, it, there, there, there's always cognizance among central bankers. Uh, the governor of the Bank of England is aware of what the uh, chair of the Fed is doing, for instance. But this type of uh, deliberate uh, coordination is something new entirely. What, what are the perils of doing that? What's going to be difficult about uh, the coordination that was proposed this week? No, I, th I mean, we don't know if there was real coordination. Certainly, yes. they were all at talk the same, of it at least. Yeah. They were all sitting at the same place, and I guess they talked to each other. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as I said, there's a common factor behind in the, the global economy that, that looks better. Yeah. No, I think there are not too many parrots. I think it has benefits mm. if you are moving in the right direction. You know, the, 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 the Bank for International Settlement just released its annual report, and this year again, they urge for some coordination. Um, because if you if you do not coordinate, I mean, then you have this problem of beggar your neighbor, you have the exchange rate uh, movements and all that stuff. But you take that a little bit off the table if they are all moving in the same direction. Uh, your, your bailiwick is uh, the U.S., of course. And I wonder sort of when you when you look at global growth, what role is the U.S. playing in that right now? Oh, huge. I mean, because the U.S., um, and that's something that, that President Trump doesn't like, I guess. The U.S. <laughs> is basically still um, the main, um, reflects most of the world's final demand because of the U.S. consumer, right? So uh, it is very important what's going on in the U.S. economy, and it is good for the rest of the world that the consumer is still pretty healthy. Consumer is pretty healthy, uh, as you say. Dovetail that with us, with retail, if, if, if you would. We hear so many uh, sad stories about closures of stores here in New York right, right. and elsewhere and uh, about the demise of the big box store, et cetera. How does that fit in with the, the picture of the consumer's health? Right. I think there, there are two aspects of that. First of all, yeah, we are always hearing about brick-and-water sales uh, stores closing, but then, of course, we have this one big 
uh, online company growing quite a bit. Heard of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's one part. Yes. Plus, I mean, this this retail sector, be Amazon or, or the other stores, yeah. that's only if you want goods. But almost three-quarter of U.S. consumer spending is services. So nobody talks about that. So I think th that's the two two aspects that solve that, ri that riddle. If you just focus on the closing of stores, you're missing Amazon as well as services, which is, well, a huge part of consumer spending. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keen. Harm Bondel's with us with Unicredit, Bloomberg Surveillance. Harm, I've got to go back to the headlines you made worldwide an hour ago where you took Dean Mackey and Ed Hyman one better from 4%, unimaginable, when Dr. Mackey said that ages ago. You were there, too. John Herman was there. Ed Hyman saying, forget about that. Mackey's right. It's going to be even lower, 3.5%. And you drive even lower than that. Can our American system stand a 3.0 or 3.1% unemployment rate? It's like a packed airplane. I mean, you can only get so many jobs in, right? Right. But, I mean, I, why would there be a problem if you create a couple of, of more jobs so I, there's no, um, no problem having a low unemployment rate? Um, it's just in the, that the pace of job creation it keeps slowing down, right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, uh, and, and that's mostly a question of labor supply. Um, as I said about an hour ago on, your, on, on TV, it's, um, you know, the, the, the labor force is growing right now maybe at a pace of 125,000. That is slowing down to 80 or even 60,000 within a couple of years. So that means then that, that employment gains at full employment or above full employment will certainly slow down to that Areas and and that takes a little bit away uh, of of GDP growth at that point, right? Where where are the jobs uh, coming from? In other words, is is the quality of jobs ticking up? Uh, I don't think it, it's kind of you have the bipolar uh, job creation. So there are not too many jobs in the middle. Mm. You have a couple of very well paid jobs and a couple of very poorly paid jobs. So that has been the pattern that we've seen over the last several years. I don't think it's changing. Okay, but I put a chart out this week. But I got the biggest response of the week. It may be my chart of the year. Full-time unemployed, uh, full-time employed, full-time jobs, population adjusted. And I may do some other work in the denominator <laughs> as well. But harm bundles, full-time employment's come back, but it's nowhere near the glory years. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think I think that is fair. I mean, that is just the result of a, if you put it positively, a more flexible labor market, right? Um, but if you look at the I mean, if you don't have full-time employment and you're looking for it, you're part of this underemployed group, right? And then you're looking at the U6 underemployment rate. That as well has been coming down. So I think there's some more room. So that is part of that hidden slack that people talk about. Um, but uh, but the direction is, is very clear. So it's not only the headline unemployment rate that has fallen a lot, but also the underemployment uh, rates, which include people who only find part-time jobs and all that. You say the Phillips curve is uh, still alive and, and well. Yes. No, it's ab <laughs> explain, explain a bit. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, f first of all, first of all, you can look at every wage measure, every core inflation measure. They have all accelerated over the last ah. several years. All of them. Of, of course, they are not as high as we thought they would be at a 4.3% mm -hmm. unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. So my twofold answer is absolutely the Phillips curve is alive. And absolutely, the parameters have shifted. <laughs> so it's just not as steep or located where it has been before. It has shifted a little bit to the left, if you want, but it's absolutely alive. There's a negative correlation between the jobless rate and inflation or wage pressure. And I also think there is a nonlinear yeah. component to it. So oh, we're come on. You can, excuse me. What is this, nonlinear Friday? <laughs> come on. We're going quadratic with harm bundles. When you say shift to the left yeah. with a Phillips curve, what does that mean? That means it's like that the way I walk down Fifth Avenue in front of 
the Gucci store, I shift to the left. Yeah, What's that's, it mean? That's, um, no, um, uh, <laughs> um, that just means for the same unemployment rate, wage pressure is a bit lower than it has been in the past. Do you agree you with like that? I like David, that, was that, like that's that. too much math? No, I'm still imagining you on Fifth Avenue outside the Gucci <laughs> store. Do, yeah, do, do, do you share the uh, the Fed chair's confidence in the transitory nature of uh, of, of the inflationary headwinds we've seen? We're yes, seeing? yes, yeah. and, and exactly for 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 the reason I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think the Fed is completely right um, that they kind of. Um, discount what we have seen over the last several months. We all know monetary policy works with a lag on the real economy, at least. And, um, well, the slack in the labor market, the slack in the economy is just diminishing. We don't know how fast and, again, how much, how high the shadow unemployment is. It could be a tad higher, but the direction is very clear. And if we believe in that, excuse me, nonlinear component, it means that <laughs> oh, wage growth will accelerate at some point. You know, the risk is <clears throat> that at some point you see a bigger increase in inflation and, and wage growth. So I think it is, it is correct that the Fed is focusing now, on that, that outlook. You grew up in Hamburg. Yes, Tell sir. us about the city that will greet the G20. I think Americans have an image of Berlin, right. maybe of Frankfurt, Munich, maybe. Hamburg's a little different. What is it? Well, I think it's um, there's, there's a saying that Germany has a world city, which is basically a kind of a metropolitan area, which is Berlin, as you know. Then Germany has a world open city, which is Hamburg. And then we have a world village, which is Munich. It's a bit dangerous for me because our headquarters is in Munich, but I assume yeah. it's maybe out for lunch. So no, Hamburg, well, that's one of the biggest European ports. Hamburg is actually the second largest city in Germany. A lot of water, a lot of green, beautiful city. Uh, but it's running out of hotel space this weekend, I'm hearing. What's the, the, the relationship shaping up to be like between uh, these European leaders and, and President Trump? In light of what we saw uh, at the G7 a few weeks back, we've seen a much closer relationship forming here between uh, Chancellor Merkel and the new president of uh, France, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, wow, how is the landscape shifting going into this G20 summit? Well, first of all, we must not forget that Germany, there's an election coming up in yeah. Germany. So, I mean, the, the election campaign is nothing compared to what we, are seeing, have we seen, what we have seen in the U.S., and I'm very grateful for that. But Merkel is a shrewd politician, really. I mean, you, I, it may make some headlines that Germany was just accepting uh, same-sex marriage. She just took it out of the head because that was something the Social Democrats were campaigning on. So, ba bang, that topic is gone. The economy is doing well. And then, of course, she occupies the other topic. Uh, not We don't... We, not, we know not only since the last Pew Research survey that um, speaking up against President Trump is very popular outside of the U.S., basically everywhere you look, and she has been toughened up her language. And uh, it's not, as you said, it's not only her. Um, it's almost every state leader with very few exceptions. Um, and maybe um, the U.S. Will, will face that almost unprecedented situation to come into a G20 meeting and be a little bit of the odd man out there. You know, it strikes me just looking at how the whole Brexit process is unfolding, the degree to which Europe has coalesced around its position. Uh, you're seeing that maybe in response to the, the president that we now have here uh, in the U.S. It seems like we have a stronger uh, Europe. Am I right in seeing that? And how does that affect uh, the, the, the U.S. economy having a stronger Europe? Um, yeah, I think that perception is correct. I mean, we still don't know exactly how these Brexit negotiations will play out. But the perception that you can, can have is, you know, that the remaining Eurozone countries, uh, Euro European Union countries, have moved a little bit more together and maybe they are willing to address some of the shortcomings that are certainly there. And yes, the election of Mr. Macron absolutely helped. Um, as I said, there's the election in Germany, so Merkel does not want to spoil anything. But after that, I think there's a good chance that Merkel and Macron work um, together a little bit more. What does it mean for the, for the US? Well, I mean, it cannot be in the interest of the US really if you have a weak eurozone, because um, 
because the values are very similar. Um, the Eurozone, if you just look at it as a whole, is, is one of the biggest economic areas. So in other words, it, is very, it will be very yeah. positive for the U.S. If, if the Eurozone strengthens further. Just one final question. Do we want a weak dollar? I, I believe the president, I mean, uh, to be fair to President Trump, every president wants a weak dollar to help exports. Does America want a weak dollar right now? Um, well, well, first of all, they always say they want a strong, a strong dollar, but, they, exactly. but the de facto they want a weak one. You know, I agree. I mean, every, I agree. Economically, everybody wants a weak uh, currency. But if you look at the structure of the U.S., um, there's so much is really driven by consumer spending. A weak currency, you know, raises prices. Um, so of all the countries in the world, I think the U.S. is the one that really that, that needs a weak currency the least because it's it's really a big, relatively closed uh, economy, and it's probably okay for the for the global economy um, if 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 we stay in, in, in the FX regime where we are right now. Great to speak with you, Zoe. This has been great. Yes. Linear and quadratic. Linear and, <laughs> and, and Gucci. Right? And Gucci. <laughs> Thank exactly. you so much. Term bondos with unit credit. Very importantly, a more optimistic house, and he really comes down to 2.3%, 2.4% view, and of course, that headline earlier that went out across Bloomberg of looking at um, a more diminished, lower, and good unemployment rate. 3.0, unemployment rate. That is just extraordinary. This is a massive rip up the script, and we're going to do it uh, carefully here with our good legal counsel, Robert Profusek of Jones Day, truly expert in transactions. Uh, Robert Pivizek, I'm not going to go into convertible bond or preferred exchange mathematics <laughs> with you. You've got associates making 2000 bucks an hour doing that for you right now. But we have Mr. Buffet today doing what every financier does, which is he does a transaction amid huge distress, Bank of America, flat on their back, and he gets a $12 billion cash in today as he moves from preferred stock over to the warrant or option to buy common shares with all the risks attended. Now, I've already read three articles which show that he's an evil Wall Street guy. Explain to our global audience the process of a financier bailing out a bank at its time of gravest need, including using Jones Day and people like you, they're allowed to cash in down the road, aren't they? That's part of the game. Yeah, that's what they purchased at the time of the, the bailout was the, this option, in essence, to convert, uh, to take the preferred and to go into the common. And that was the bet, is that the common would increase in value now that it has. And now that the stress tests have been basically passed, the, the assumption is there, there's a lot more upside in it. We are 10 years on from this financial crisis. You and I remember different sweat. I was doing media and interviewing people flat on the back, careers ending. You were advising clients. And the common feature of 07 and 17 is Main Street doesn't get Wall Street. How do we have Main Street understand you can't save the day in 07 unless you give the bacon down, you know, you get the reward in 17? Well, there's there's obviously short memories, but back in 2007, who was going to bail out Bank of America? Who was going to do all this stuff? It was people who had confidence in the future. They would make a bet and hope, hope that it would pay off. I mean, going back to those times, 
we thought we were all going to be eaten out of dumpsters, and we're yeah. not. And and that was a big part of the equation. So it's easy to, to in hindsight, to be critical just because the bet paid off. But that was the bet. What is the, the, the news that we got yesterday about Sycamore Partners buying Staples for $6.9 billion? Tell us about the state of retail. We can dovetail that with the news that we got about Amazon and Whole Foods uh, uh, as well. Uh, there still seems to be some confidence in uh, a brick-and-mortar enterprise. Do you, do you represent either party? Well, we're involved in uh, – Staples is a client, right. so I'm not going to comment step specifically. Back. But step re- back, retail's yeah. a fascinating story. Uh, talked about Amazon Whole Foods before. What What is that? Is it a retail story? Hmm. Is it a tech story? Is it all the above? Is it an activist story? It's a lot of things. But one of the things is retail's here to stay. So, and and look at, you know, everybody's down on Walmart, for example, but Walmart's been doing a lot of acquisitions, including of tech companies, and they're repositioning themselves for the future. Do you suggest that the smaller companies, I mean, I mean, everybody makes the headlines with Mr. Buffett and Vale of South Africa, not Vale, the, the, the Heinz people, that big mergers. Will there be a lot of little mergers now? Does well, there have been a lot of little mergers. And there's going to be more. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting time because with equity values going up, 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 you know, if you're a seller, are you thinking, well, is this the right time? or isn't? Well, I'm not so sure. So there's a little bit of, pe- of holdback on that. But you look at, s- at spaces where there's, you know, a secular change going on, retail, I, I Possibly we're going to have a replay in oil and gas in this country in terms of what's going on with the pricing. You know, one of the things you can do is consolidate. And, you know, we're going to see tons of consolidation going forward. Um, the, the other element of all of this is that the IPO market remains pretty choppy. Yes. The uh, action the SEC took uh, yesterday, which, which is designed to stimulate more of that, that stuff, I think is a sign of that. And one of the things about the world we live in is somebody makes an IPO and all of a sudden everybody's taking pot shots at the company. Even people who haven't read the prospectus have a view on whether, you know, it should be public or not. So we'll we'll see. But yeah, in this environment, there has to be M and A in a lot of spaces because there just has to be rationalization. Well, we're here with Bob Profusik, global chair of M and A at Jones Day. He's in our Bloomberg eleven three zero studios uh, in New York. Let me ask you about the the political landscape here. We saw the. Dissolution, the breaking up of a deal yesterday involving Walgreens Boots Alliance and, uh, and Rite Aid. And just taking a step back from that, it seems like those two companies whoa, were... Whoa, 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 Yeah. He represents all three. All three. <laughs> <laughs> Including the FTC, which I'm about to mention here. There, there is some sense here the FTC was not going to go along with this deal. Again, let's take a, a step back just to look at what the, the regulatory landscape looks like in Washington uh, yeah, today. How different is it under this administration than it was previously? Well, the proof's in the pudding, but it, there's a sense that it's very different. Um, uh, it, it, the administration, the Obama administration, had gotten pretty aggressively anti-merger, particularly, not surprisingly, in businesses that have direct-to-consumer uh, elements. Now the assumption is it's better. I mean, it's a little unpredictable. Don't forget candidate Trump came out against uh, the Time Warner deal when he was a candidate. It's hard to, it's hard to know for certain and, of course, that deal is really on the prior watch. So we'll have to see. But the assumption is at least it can't be worse. What's a, a tougher thing to overcome? Uh, you draw a distinction here between political attention and regulatory uh, scrutiny. When you're, when you're trying to broker a deal, what's a, what's a bigger barrier? Regulatory scrutiny by far. I mean, many deals have get uh, Congress people write letters and, and make speeches and get sound bites. That usually doesn't move the needle very much. But it's really what the regulators do. 
here and in the EU, um, and increasingly in a couple of outlier jurisdictions. I don't want to get you in trouble with your general counsel. Oh, no, wait a <laughs> yeah, minute. Yes, you are does. the general yes, counsel. Yeah. Who, when you say the regulators, who are those guys? Are, are they ex-Jones Day associates and partners? Are they, are they lawyers? Are they, I think to a large part of our audience, when people say the regulators... We don't know who they are. Well, that's, a, that's actually an important point because the people who really investigate are not people who change when the administration changes. These are career people who are generally hardworking, competent people, very often with legal backgrounds, sometimes not. They, they, are, they do the investigation. Now, the people at the top, they turn over, and they're people from firms like mine and others that, that change yeah. over time. But the real people, the staff people, they're consistent. Some of them are true believers, and that can be a problem if you're trying to get something past them. But but they're 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 okay. f- faceless, but very competent, good people. True believers is from the X Files for those of you younger. If you go from Administration A to Administration B, those regulators don't change. Not very much. So who makes Administration A different from Administration B? The president, or is it six people that we don't know their names? No, but it would be the head of the FTC yet to be named. It'd really? Be, th- yeah, that directional? The, yeah, head of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. It, it's people who are, who you know of, um, and they articulate policy. They don't, it's not like they go dictate things, but they start giving Do speeches. they get pushback from the regulators? Does their staff say on a given drug transaction, like the one where you represent Rite Aid, do they, does the regulators all of a sudden they come in one day and the Jones Day people say, whoa, these people have all changed? Uh, to some degree, but but when the, when the people that we're talking about uh, have a point of view, they've got to put it, make, push it up the ladder and the decisions about whether to challenge something are made at the top. So there is an effect because it's okay. basically fascinating. They, they've got the yeah. veto. Very we, we started off this Very busy valuable. week talking about competition uh, in Europe in light of the, the announcement made by the EU Competition Commissioner regarding Google. I want your practice is a global one. I wonder if you could help us understand the particular flavor of, of uh, concerns surrounding mergers and acquisitions uh, in Europe. It does seem like a very different place than, than here. It's, uh, I, I, I think uh, a year ago you would have said, what's the most aggressive antitrust environment? You would have said the U.S. Now you're going to say it's Brussels. The EU has been is aggressive. Is you know there are lots of true believers there, and there's some other countries. One of the things about um, about M and A these days is like all of business, it's globalized. And when you do a transaction, you'll end up with not just one or two, but many places. You have to get a deal cleared. Some of the play, some countries are less developed in terms of predictability of their systems. China, India, places like that. So you, you, it's it's much more difficult, um, but the EU, without question, I think is going to supplant the U.S. Has the pace of deal making changed at all? We talk about the change with the administration, just the, the changes generally. Is it taking longer to to ink a deal than it did in the past? I, I'm not so sure it's taken longer to ink it, but mm. it's sure taken longer to close it because of these factors. Okay. Um, and you know, think about there some of the deals in the news this week. They're a year old. That's not uncommon to get a global deal done mm-hmm. or a direct-to-consumer deal done. What do smaller companies want to do? We, you know, we give all the ink to the big transactions and the big names. Are, are, are your people flying around the country trying to drum up business, or is the phone ringing off the hook in Manhattan? There, it's a, the pipeline right now is really very active, um, including ranging from large things to lots of smaller transactions. 
there, I think mm-hmm. there's a sense uh, among entrepreneurs and founders that yeah. things are good enough, mm-hmm. um, and and why not? Why not do it now rather than hold yeah. off for another tick up in in multiples? We do this once or twice a year. That let's do it right now. I believe lawyers got out of law school. When's the bar exam? Is it is the bar exam a certain date? It's in the, the summer. Year? In the summer. So they're all studying. David, let's jump off here on law academics with Robert Profusak. I, I wonder, you know, we, we had the financial crisis. A lot of people went to law school. There was a sense that law schools were overcrowded. Two people were, too many people were going there. It was hard for them to land jobs afterward. What does the, the, the labor economy look like in corporate law right now? Well, you still, you know, it, it depends on the which level you're looking at. Um, you know, the bigger firms still have the ability to ter- attract really competent people for, for fairly obvious reasons. But it's a much more, you know, diverse uh, mosaic in terms of opportunities. Um, a lot of people go to law school to just broaden their horizons. Some people go to fix up their balance sheets because of their educational mm-hmm. debt. There, there's all sorts of reasons. Um, it's it's just more complex. Is there more lateral movement now? Uh, more, there's a fair amount of lateral yeah. movement. Um, and, and you know, and as a as an industry, we're 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 experiencing the same things that lots of businesses do in terms of technology. Uh, it used to be you needed ten associates for every partner. That pyramid is getting narrower because of technology. So it's ten partners for one associate. <laughs> it, it's conceivable. <laughs> I mean, the law firm of the future could be all partners. Yeah. Let me ask the dumb question of the day: Do corporate attorneys, M and A attorneys, do do you look at? constitutional law reporting like our great Greg Store and others, is it like doctors where it's almost foreign to you? Or when you go through law school, do you have enough of a knowledge where you're very conversant in the world of Noah Feldman and others? I think you stay. You have to stay conversant because you have to be, uh, you have to be well-rounded mm-hmm. at a certain level. If you're in the boardroom, you can't be a you know, very narrow uh, person. So yeah, you do. You do stay you up on all that stuff. Um, there's no question yeah. about it, and it isn't just, you know, love of the law. It's really relevant to the business. Interesting, interesting. This has been wonderful, Robert Profusik. Great, yeah. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Uh, an amazing week. Uh, uh, somebody had on Twitter. Mr. Brown had out on Twitter. Ninety-eight billion in share buybacks announced by banking this week. Wow. Uh, I believe that's the right that's number. That's the post-rest 100, test 100. result there. Yeah. You know, everybody's just buying stuff back. And, of course, Mr. Buffett with his transactions. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. We need to get to central banks here, David Gura, with our next guest. But usually we bury the punchline, which is wheat, and red wheat particularly. And unfortunately, we've got to start with that. What did you do, Dennis? Corner the market on red wheat just so you could get to the fourth? Uh, well... It, 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 there really is a, a, a rather discouraging circumstance taking place out in the Midwest. The, uh, the spring wheat crop, not the hard red winter wheat, nor the soft red winter, but the spring wheat crop is in very bad condition, and the protein quality of the other two crops are in, are in difficult uh, circumstances. So you have a bull market taking place in wheat, which is unusual at this time of the year. Normally, 
This is the height right. of the winter wheat harvest. Normally, prices are under pressure. This year, they're, they're going parabolically up. I've been bullish of wheat. I think it's time to stand to the sidelines for a day or two, though, because we have a big USDA crop report coming out today, which well, historically has been very volatile. Brave of you. I'm doing the deviation analysis here because that's why Gartman speaks to me. He knows I'm going to do that for him. Dennis, we're out to 3.3 standard deviation up on red wheat uh, on a weekly uh, chart. Uh, Dennis, who makes and who loses money when you see a stochastic spike on a commodity? Well, I mean, since commodities are a sum-zero game, for every long there is a short, for Thank every you. short there is a long, which is, on the, which is not the same as in the equities market. You don't have to have a short for every long. So in the commodity futures game, what one team loses, the other team wins. There is no net creation nor loss of wealth, except for the amount of the crop itself that is created or lost. But in the futures themselves, there is no net creation of wealth in either direction. We joke about the, the various varieties of, of wheat and the quinoa forecasts and all of that. But, uh, Dennis, let me ask you what you're going to be looking for today when we get that crop report. What, what's most important about it to you? What are you going to be looking for? Well, there's, the, the big problem will be how much corn has it, because this is really a crop report for corn and yep. soybeans. We will be secondary. It'll be a, it, it's an interesting question. Will there have been, for the first time in history, more acres planted to soybeans than have been planted to corn? It, that's been a, really quite unusual. We've always had six, yeah. seven million more acres of corn corn planted. This year we may actually have the yeah. same number of, of acres of corn and soybeans. Very unusual, very atypical, and probably bearish of the bean market on balance. Yeah, and now we try to get back to more interesting matters. Gartman, may I quote <laughs> folks, quote, we are still confused, unquote. Uh, Dennis, what a week for central banking. And yeah. I say this with great respect. You and I are trying to be students of history. Yeah. His coordinated action ever worked. I've never seen that conceit ever be proved out. Have you? Well, there have been a few times when concerted, coordinated action has occurred. For example, the, the, the Swiss National Bank has been, has been concertedly trying to keep and has been success, successful in keeping the Swiss franc down relative oh, to the euro. But come on, that's, but that's but unilateral. That, that's unilateral. Yeah, I understand. Has there been a, a collective, uh, consolidated, uh, uh, two-sided event uh, in, in the past? Well... Maybe after the Plaza Agreement, we had uh, concerted activity, but on balance, no. Whenever you see two groups try to, to move something in one direction, they usually fail. Truly one of the more astonishing moments this week was when uh, Bloomberg News put out a piece looking at market reaction to what Mario Draghi said during a speech uh, now three days yeah. ago uh, in, in Portugal. What did you make of what happened there, what, what the, uh, the president of the ECB was saying at the time and how it was interpreted? It was, it was rather interesting, wasn't it? Because when he first when he talked... Uh, as if the the ECB were going to move quickly to tighten monetary policy, or at least to avoid further easing, at least to avoid further experimentation with quantitative easing, the the euro ran from what 112.50 to almost to 114.50 in the course of a few moments. Then you had some people going on television saying, "Well, maybe the market has overreacted." Members of the ECB Monetary Policy Committee themselves coming out and saying, well, maybe the market has overreacted. So then the euro fell from 114 back to around 1250 or so, and now we're back close to 114 and a half. It is a very confusing uh, period of time. One that, you know, I've lived through 40 years of this. I've seen other confusing periods, but I don't think I've ever seen as many contrary comments coming from monetary policy officials as we have seen this week. Are we going to see that resistance tested soon, do you think? 
I, I think 115 is going to be tested. Perhaps this morning when we rushed up to 114.45 and got to 114.70 yesterday, that might have been the test. But I do yeah. have a, a feeling that 115 wants to be put on the board. Markets have a strange way of going to what I've always referred to as the obscene number, the one that nobody can believe. And a rally from 105 to 110 over the course of the two months, maybe 115 gets tested. I doubt it's able to push much past there. We're going to come back with Dennis Gartman and talk about the equity markets. Also, he's railing against children that don't walk to school. Gartman <laughs> is a ute. He used to walk five miles to school. It was amazing. He walked across time zones. Uh-huh. He walked like from the central time zone into the eastern time zone, out in the hustings there to the west. Dennis, let's turn to the stock market if we could. They were painting the tape yesterday, uh, you write yeah. in the letter. Uh, what's going on? Uh, it's an old term that the old guard in, in, in the stock market used to refer to when, they, when, when, when you see the Dow up sharply and the S&P up a little bit less sharply and the NASDAQ up even less sharply or on the downside when you see the Dow down only a little bit but the broader market indices down rather dramatically. The, the public tends to pay attention to only what the Dow is doing and loses uh, attention to what the broader market is doing. And when they're painting the tape, uh, they, it, it tends to be a bearish market circumstance. And we've seen that happening now over the course of the past several weeks. The Dow is looking, if you look at a chart of the Dow, it looks okay. If you look at a chart of the S&P, it looks demonstrably less positive. And if you look at a chart of the NASDAQ, it looks positively negative. So that's, a, that's an example of tape painting, and they're doing it, and it's not bullish. What's, what's the catalyst that's led to this sort of a bearish tendency, do you think? Well, I think uh, ostensibly it's going to be higher interest rates rising around the world, not just here in the United States, but the, as, as we talked earlier, the ECB is considering reducing the, the, uh, its, its experiment with quantitative easing and has actually talked about raising rates. <laughs> the Canadians are talking about raising rates. The British are talking about raising rates. And we are obviously on the move toward yeah. raising rates. So I think that's really what uh, that's the primary driving force between a, behind a bearish circumstance in the equities market. Yeah. You know, when the stars align, which in the world of investment means when Doug Cass and Dennis Gartman agree, uh, Dennis, we've got the idea here of you shorting the market. Does that mean yeah. I go out in my 401k and sell everything? No, it doesn't. And, and that would be the uh, an archetypally bad thing to do. I, I'm I'm getting bearish of stocks, but not dramatically so yet, and I won't be until we actually see more weakness developing. So I'm actually buying puts, which is the least bearish position one can take. If you're a, if you're the public and you're long in your 401k, maybe you sell some calls, maybe you buy a few puts, maybe you simply reduce your exposure a little bit. It would be premature, however, to tell anybody go out and, and, yeah. and sell everything. That would be ill-advised on my part, and I won't mm. do that. Dennis Garman, that was a clinic on painting the tape. It was really very clear and really well said. Yesterday, folks, we talked about a concept called position sizing, which in my speeches I call the how much A guy named Van Tharp wrote a brilliant chapter on this umpteen years ago. Mr. Gartman, you do a clinic in your newsletter this morning about what Ed Thorpe would call anti-Martingale theory, which is if you put a trade in place, let's say short stocks, you add to your position as your trade is successful, unlike yes. doing the other way. Explain yes. why people are wrong when they add to their position if all of a sudden the trade goes against them. It's, it's very simple. In life, generally, if you do more of that which has been working and less of that which has not, 
you will succeed. And that's all I, I would advocate. If you find yourself being long of a stock at 15 and it goes to 20, you probably should buy more because the market is telling you that you're right. If you buy a stock at 45 and it goes to 40, you probably should at least do less because the market is telling you that you're wrong. The market is the sum total of the wisdom of everybody trading in it, and how dare you argue with that wisdom. So I think it's just a very simple notion to say, I want to do more of that which has been working, less of that which has not. It works in life, it works in trading, it works in investing. Mm -hmm. Dennis, I always value your perspective on gold. We had this moment this week where gold really dropped. Our, our colleague Bob Moon yeah. saying it might have been a fat finger. Of course, there are a lot of reports looking into to all that. Not my fat whose finger. Whose finger did you think it was? <laughs> Dennis, I, uh, I actually, what, what transpired earlier this week when it comes to gold? I actually think it was Venezuela selling gold. Interesting. And, and, the re and, Interesting. and, and I, I say that because two days later, we find out that the Venezuelans had to buy, or didn't have to buy, but were finally able to buy 16 million barrels of various types of fuels, or diluent as it's called. They need, Venezuela needs to, to blend its rather crappy uh, asphalt that it has, which has an abundant supply yeah. of it, with better, with better quality. But nobody has been willing to sell Venezuela better quality fuels because they didn't think they would get paid. So Venezuela has had no choice but to sell assets, and they sold gold. I think the yeah. two the two things happening within two days of one another indicate to me that that seller was probably Venezuela. Uh, Dennis, one final question, and I, a question said with respect for our Kevin Cirilli, Marty Schenker, and others in Washington. We have travel ban. We have health care. I know you're experienced in this with the chin tuck you had two years ago. Dennis, I, I, I really want to know if the zaniness of our combined collective Washington affects what you do with your money. Does it? It does. It does. And, and it is zany. It is as confused and confusing as we have ever seen. Tweet, tweets coming out, attacks being made. If you don't get less involved, I think you're doing yourself a, a disservice. These are terribly confusing times. Now, we always live through confusing times, but perhaps it's just that we are more, because there's more of these confusing times available to us in the media, maybe we're just aware of them more than we had been in the past. But these are indeed confusing times, and I think mm -hmm. exposing oneself to the, to the equities market slightly less is a, is a reasonable, rationable, and, rational, and proper thing to do. Dennis Garman, thank you so much. The Garman letter, and of course I would mention that Unlike so many, Mr. Garbin actually shows his trades on the back of his Love newsletter, yeah. unlike so very few. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith, Incorporated.